As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Audible presented by Trader Joe's. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined as always by Bruce Feldman. Hey, Bruce, thanks for, well, I guess I should really thank Max Olson for pinch hitting last week. I do want to clarify one thing. I was not on vacation. Uh, I was out of pocket for one day while traveling to the East Coast, and that just happened to be the one day that you could record. So we just couldn't quite match up our schedules there. My actual leaving the country thing is a few weeks away. By the way, so while you're while you're away, um, I ended up doing Andy Staples podcast, and in the beginning, it's, like Donna, it's the first time I've ever d- appeared on our podcast with our podcast cult hero Ari Wasserman. Um, and I, it, Andy's podcast does something where it's like it's all you know you can watch it if you mm-hmm. want to. Um, and so I referenced being glad to be on with Ari, who's, if anybody has watched Andy's podcast, knows he's an interesting character. Um, and to see the look on his face when I said, they suggested that he was blackballed from the audible <laughs> and not my doing. Oh my God. He just looked so crushed and disappointed in you. I know I did clarify, but just have fun with him. There was a, I know there was a time there before he became a regular on Andy's show that he did have the the reason he reacted that way is that for whatever reason, I swear it wasn't intentional. We either hadn't had him on in a while or maybe ever. And he actually started to believe that we had blackballed him, that there was some sort of conspiracy <laughs> there. So when you said that's why I think he had that reaction. We haven't started televising our podcast yet. If we did, we would probably both have to dress better and um, shave the dressing. I think in my case, like there's one thing, Andy's thing, it ended up being an hour. And so you got to see me from the beginning for the first half where I'm sitting up and kind of like I would be doing if I had to do like something that would appear on TV to my normal, which is right now, which is laying on the couch where mm-hmm. it looks like, you know, you see, you know, you basically see me laying down. And so anyway, um, well, it's good to have you back. I think in part because I wasn't here last week, we haven't we haven't answered mailbag questions in way too long. We've got a, a bunch of really good ones. So want to make sure people realize 
that we are going to do an extended mailbag session in a little bit. Uh, you wanted to ask me about something else first, though. Yeah, so it's dating back to your living in New York, maybe even living in your Georgia days. Um, you used to do this thing for SI.com. I didn't know if it was CNNSI.com, but SI.com, where you would, in your own opinion, categorize what you thought were college football brands. I would essentially say it like that, right? Um, how you ranked them. Maybe this was pre-Game of Thrones days, but you had... It was actually, yeah, categorize them in a certain way. So why don't you explain to the people who have no idea what you did and what you were doing, what this thing is, how it came about and what they can find on theathletic.com this week in a column you revisited. So way back in 2007 in a mailbag, somebody asked me to, to rank all of the power conference teams in terms of prestige level. Um, and, you know, the system I came up with was, a, a you know, old medieval days, uh, hierarchy, kings, barons, uh, knights, peasants. And, I mean, you think about, I guess I've been doing this long enough that I would imagine I've written into the thousands of articles. And I, I can't explain why, but this one is the one that people have remembered that all they bring back up. And that they always wait for the update because I insisted, I was very adamant schools, you know, identities, brands, prestige don't change very often you know, college football brands are very resilient. Like, well, if I'm going to revisit it, I'm only going to revisit it once every five years. And if you had told me in 2007, that there would be a 2022 edition, I don't think I could have fathomed that, but yes, on Tuesday on the athletic first time getting to do one of these for the athletic, by the way, um, I, I did our new, uh, the new version. And, you know, what's cool is the whole thing started with Georgia um, back in 2007. Is Georgia one of the blue bloods? Or are they one of the kings at the time? I did not think they were. This was Mark Richt was the coach. They were doing very well, but they weren't, you know, uh, they weren't what they've become under Kirby Smart. And I, I thought of them as more of a regional power, like, Pretty pretty similar to Auburn. Um, Georgia what fans took it. You did this to 2007. Okay, so also should be noted at that time the SEC was not at all what it is known for now because that was really just at the beginning of the SEC's run That's of right. dominance over the sport. It was well, and it's and it's amusing to go back if you go back to 2007, you'd be like, I mean, Tennessee. I had Tennessee as one of the kings because at that point they were not that far removed from the Philip Fulmer. Uh, glory days. Uh, now, obviously, that seems absurd. Um, you know, in 2007, there would not have even been a question that Nebraska should be one of the kings. Uh, but as of five years ago, they dropped to Barron. So um, the crazy thing about just kind of how this took off is that there's one Georgia blogger in particular, he goes by Senator Blutarski, who took such umbrage to the not so much the the place where they were, I think, but the the paragraph I wrote back then, where I said, you know, my my unofficial measuring stick would be if we went to Montana and we found a hundred what I would call average college football fans. So not me- message board crazies, but also not people who watch one game a year, and held up a Georgia helmet and said, "Do you know what school this is?" 
I don't think it would be universal. So he actually found a volunteer Georgia fan to go around to sports bars in Montana and filmed asking 100 people uh, whether they recognized it. It ended up being 73 to 27, I believe. Yes, 73 to 27, whether they did or didn't. So here we are, you know, 20, it was always going to be a 2022 update. And so, of course, six months before the 2022 update, Georgia wins the national championship, makes it a very obvious um, decision to move them up into the Kings. They were heading that way anyway, I think. And so I asked him over email, um, by the way, his real name, in case, uh, uh, you know, I don't know. Should we just keep the mystery and keep calling him Senator Blutarski? It's your call. It's your, it's your. Well, he's, he's, he was going to be identified in the story anyway, Michael Brockstein in Atlanta. So I asked him for his reaction to this finally happening. He said, short answer, about damn time. Nuanced answer. And I think this is interesting because I hadn't thought about this, this quite this way. The ingredients for sustained elite success have been there for decades. UGA enjoys one of the best recruiting bases in the country, and the program has been extremely good at generating revenue. What's held UGA back has been the, that the four power bases, school administration, athletic department administration, boosters, and head coach not working in sync and sometimes working across purposes. That's not the case anymore, and Kirby Smart deserves the lion's share of the credit for that. It's an underappreciated aspect of his head coaching tenure, and it's why things feel more sustainable for the long term than they've ever seemed for Georgia. It's That, that just tells you, right, it's not that simple as, oh, we have a great recruiting base, just get a good coach, and you'll be a national power. You know, there's so many behind-the-scene things that have to align. All right, so let's touch on, we don't want to give away the store here with your column, but I think there's some interesting layers of it. Um, you know, I, as I think you said, whether Georgia won the national title or didn't win it this year, they would have been in your Kings no matter what, right? I mean, they were already kind of made men after competing and, and making the playoff multiple times, right? especially after being in the national championship game in 2017. And, you know, when you're talking prestige, it's a very subjective thing, but one of the ways that one of the very obvious ways to, to measure cachet is recruiting. Um, you know, there's a reason why, regardless of kind of how they do year from one year to the next, that Texas can still recruit at the highest level. Right. For that's just one example. Um, and Georgia had turned into a program that was recruiting as well as anybody in the country. So that told me that they, they had that national cachet now. All right. So I want to get into the top side of your food chain here. And when you get into your Kings, there are three, four, four schools that are, that have been uh, relegated out of it. Florida, Florida state, Miami, Penn state. I don't know if I would disagree with any of those. I'm, I'll be honest. I'm not sure, like, nothing you set up. Like, it, it, I have two small questions. Um, and they're both re ones regarding Michigan and ones regarding Texas. If Michigan had gone seven and six last year, as I think you probably would have predicted with your feeling on Jim Harbaugh, as opposed to winning the Big Ten and making the playoff, would Michigan have still been there? I, yeah. Yeah. Um... You know, you used that phrase before, made men. There are just a, a small handful of programs that 
and Michigan's one of them. Notre Dame's one of them. I think Ohio State's one of them. So no matter what, they're no going matter. To I mean, just to just case in point, you know, as I point out in this article, when I did the 2007 edition, Nick Saban had not yet coached his first game at Alabama, and yet Alabama was still one of the kings even then. They just the history and the tradition and the recognize uh, recognition level is so great. I mean, everybody knows the maize and blue, the, the the helmets like that. It would take now. I would have said that at one point about Nebraska. So it's not like it's impossible for a program to get moved down, but boy, Michigan, that would take an awful lot. Can I ask you a, a uh, macro Mandel question here? And um, that is this. <laughs> okay. So when you did this, first did this 15 years ago, I feel like the zeitgeist of you as a writer, not just you per se, but writers, um, especially in our sport, is different now than it was then. There wasn't really much social media. I mean, there, there was less um, pushback on things. So you couldn't just take a wide swing and not expect to get blowback. Maybe there was bloggers, but I feel like there was certainly no Twitter. So if you threw something out and just kind of like stood there, I feel like now there is more demand for accountability to, to explain yourself. You know, you couldn't have just said, oh, I feel this way. I mean, you could say it, but I feel like your credibility would be attacked more if people feel like, um, like I think if you, if you were where you were and just threw something out there and people were like, yeah, that sounds right. But in reality, when you look back at the numbers, you don't have really that much of a leg to stand on. So they're going to say, oh, that's a BS thing. Like, I, I feel like now, and I think this is a good thing, but, you know, like when you, when you said you did this, it was, it wasn't that far removed. I mean, it was within a 15 year window of Gene Stallings winning a national title for Alabama and DeBose had a top 10 season and Franchoni had a, well, I guess they were 11th, you know, you had Mike Shula had a top 10 season. So it wasn't like preposterous with Alabama, I guess is what I'm saying. Um. Yes. I mean, if you just yes. think you, yeah, I, but if you think back to the SEC in the nineties in particular, and I know Alabama won a national title early, it was really two programs, Florida and Tennessee that got all the oxygen. Alabama went through about a 15 year period and they had a couple of scandals in there where it was like, they weren't must see TV, right? You weren't circa 2007. You weren't Alabama's on CBS this week. I got to watch, but Bear Bryant, that legacy was so strong um that they were they were definitely still seen as one of the blue bloods interesting though that you the way you put that about social media i actually got much more blowback to these things back in the days when people actually emailed me if i wrote something controversial or um that yeah, i don't i'm not sure what the bar was but i would get hundreds of emails um, is it because you did not work behind a paywall back then? Maybe? No, I think it's because, well, two reasons. One, SI.com made it very easy. They had a button right at the top of the story that said email Stuart. Um, like when I did mailbags back then, the questions actually came through, e for, through real email. I rarely get those now. Do you feel um, like you lost your fastball a little bit? Do you get inundated with emails about when you write something? Um, I, you get I'm tweets. Not, I'm not proud of this, but I engage with 
Um, I used to be very good about responding to everything that I would get in email. Um, I am not very good at that. So a lot of that has to be with, I'm less, you know, like I was not married with kids back then. So I just don't have the patience or the, I'm not as, I don't say I'm not as committed to my job, but it's just like, there was a lot of other stuff that I wasn't doing. But I also think you're on, un, you're underestimating. I mean, we rarely use email now. Like most of my email is just spam um, at the athletic. And now that may be because co- part of the company culture at the athletic is we do everything over Slack, you know, memos and whatnot go out over Slack. But um, back then email was the main way people reached you. And I'm telling you, I had, so I had like one of these auto forward things where anything that came through that, um, that form went into a folder I had and you could see it was Microsoft Outlook. You could see the number of unreads in there. And by the end of the football season, like it would be in the 800, 900, a thousand, like you just couldn't get to them all. And I'm telling you now I, I might get one a week or one every other week. So um, I think Twitter, I get what you're saying. And we'll see. I, we're recording this before it's actually gone up, so I don't even yet know what the reaction is going to be. Um, but I think Twitter responds more to if you're just flat out wrong about something, like like if you really screw up. <laughs> Do you remember there was like so? I have two. One's a one's a you example, and then one's a Gene Ojahowski example. I sat I sat with Gene, who I used to work with at ESPN. Um, God, this is probably a dozen years ago. And I always used to say, if you want to get feedback, the, the easiest way to do is to put a mistake in a story because people yeah. will light you up. Gene had something that he didn't do. It was an editor who had put this in. I don't want to throw the editor under the bus because, you know, it's like whatever. But um, where I think it was they got the result wrong of like a Miami Penn State of the maybe in the Vinny Testaverde game or something like that where people were apoplectic. And I just remember the look on his face where it was just like, he's getting an avalanche of stuff and it's one you didn't do, you know, that kind of thing. I do remember, and I don't remember who the blog was. I thought it actually was like, it was a Georgia, it was a Georgia college football blog. And I remember they did a blog post where it was like, Stuart Mandel can eat a d- or something like that. And I remember you looked at it in the press box and, and, you showed me it or I saw it and it was just kind of like, whoa, this is way over the top. You definitely hit a nerve. Um, was it Michigan? Was it MGO blogging? I think that guy. It, hates I don't know if it was MGO blog. It was just like Stuart Mandel can eat a d- was this was the title of the blog post. Uh, put the explicit warning on this episode. Sorry. Um, I'll tell you what, there was a period there. Um, you know, we've watched kind of there be like a, a democratization of, of sports where pretty much anybody can have a take. Um, and if it's good and if you're a good writer, it'll get out. I mean, I all credit to Spencer Hall. I remember him being kind of the first uh, non-traditional, you know, didn't work for an ESPN or an SI or whatnot and got a big following uh, from Every Day Should Be Saturday. So I'm not putting yeah. him in this category, but there was a there was a period I want to say around I remember I, I took a little a five month sabbatical in 2009 and kind of stepped away from it a little bit. And when I came back and kind of like assessed how things had changed, one thing I noticed is, you know, the blogosphere had really taken off. And what bothered me was a lot of these blogs at that time 
a lot of their content was just kind of what you described, like take something that I wrote or uh, I don't know, Pat Forty wrote or whoever that you disagree with and just bash the hell out of that guy. <laughs> um, not, uh, you know, not, I have some original thought. Like I always, you know, I don't care who you are. If you've got good original thoughts about college football, I'll read it. This was more, this guy sucks, you know, like a whole, a whole um, thing around that. Okay. Apparently you found it from 2005. Wow. How did you find this? I just put in, I, into Google, Stuart Mandel can eat a something. All right. I want to read this. It's it, the blog is called the corporate headquarters of the San Antonio the gunslingers. It's, it's a blog spot. Remember blog so spot? I found, 2005. I found Wait, wait. I found this from, um, I think this is all, this is an SB nation thing. Orson. We know who Orson is or was. Is he, is that um, who wrote it? it? No. Like if you go through, it's like, uh, gunslinger shoot up Mandel nasty like is the headline and there is a reference to Jesse Mahalona which SEC fans will remember that name um well, first of all you're, you're you're bearing the lead that the the headline of this post is douchebag college football pundit of the week okay I don't know if that's something you put in your resume but um so yeah this is this is kind of like, so I think Spencer or somebody who works with Spencer had aggregated that blog post. It's not Spencer because it's a, definitely a Georgia fan that wrote this. No, but I'm saying Spencer was Orson Swindle, remember? Yeah. Where I'm, where is he on this? I'm going to, this is, this is how I found it. Click on that. Oh, I see. You found it because you came across an everyday should be Saturday post. Yes. That says gun, gunslingers shoot up Mandel nasty like. Hey, random, random, since we're talking, Spencer is kind of the godfather of college football um, bloggers. Uh, so once upon a time, um, I had thinking when I, I was actually doing a blog for ESPN.com and I, had, I think I'd wrote in the bottom of it, hey, I'm going to Atlanta this weekend to cover the NCAA tournament. Spencer had reached out to me. We had never met before. And he was like, hey, would like to grab a beer if you would like. Uh, I live in Georgia. And I was very familiar with his blog. Every day should be Saturday. I think this was, you know, uh, former cup days and just, you know, a lot of very uh, smart, clever um, thoughts that he had posted in there. And so I was leaving a bunch of like, quote, mainstream media people. And I told a couple of them, yeah, I'm going to meet this guy. And this was back you know, as best I could tell, it was like some, something that was maybe a soccer bar we were going to, I don't even know, uh, or a dive bar kind of place. And I told somebody and they were like kind of incredulous that I was going to meet this stranger that I was like, like Spencer was going to roofie me or something like that. It was just so random. And then the funny part was years and years later, the person who had said that to me actually went, went to work with Spencer. So there you go. Um, the last paragraph of this says, by the way, this is an entire, this, this over the top reaction is to just a line I had in a story about a Georgia, Tennessee game. Um, this column is a perfect example of why national writers for college football are at best uninformed at worst biased, ignorant, ignorami. It is impossible to file a story column by noon and Sunday, having watched more than portions of a few games. That is true. And when you rely on highlights to tell the story of games, you miss out. 
Unfortunately, these writers do have an effect on coverage of teams and in turn polls, which affect the national title picture. I'm not so naive as to think that if an undefeated team takes care of its business, everything else will work out. It hasn't two years in a row. And people like Stuart Mandel are part of, part of the problem, especially with foolish columns like this. I'm telling you, that was that was a pretty um, common tone back then. Let's let's it was kind of the, you know, David versus Goliath kind of like, I'm just a, I'm, I'm the little guy. I'm the guy with the blog taking down this guy who works for big national publication. I don't see that now. I really don't. Now, to your point, I know we've gone on a complete tangent from the column we were talking about, but where you, where you're going to get lit up is if you make an offensive comment in a story, somebody will screenshot that. I mean, like a real offensive comment, not a sports offensive comment. People will screenshot that, put it up there, and then, you know, you're, you're going to get canceled uh, pretty quickly thereafter. But I don't see such vitriol anymore over a sports take, maybe because so many people have them now. Um, uh, anyway, back to the Kings and Barons. I'm, I'm pleased right, so that I'm you said you good. agree. Yeah, go ahead. So I'm so I'm good with Barons at all. Um, so I was going to ask you though. I'm good with Kings. I'm sorry. When you get to Barons, mm-hmm. uh, that's where I kind of have a question for you. So your Barons, Auburn, Florida, Florida State, Iowa. I was a new entry. Miami, Michigan State, Nebraska, Oregon, Penn State, Stanford out, Tennessee, Texas A&M, UCLA out, Virginia Tech out, Wisconsin. All right. So in that group. Nebraska, who you had dropped from the original list, here's the question I would have. Um, and it's a great fan base with a ton of tradition, but they their best finish in the top 20 in the past 20 years, their best finish, they finished 14th. That's the only time they've been in the top 15 in the past 20 years. They haven't been to a bowl game in six years. They've had one winning season in the past seven years. I mean, you could make a strong case. I would think that they should be booted out of the Barons too, no? This is where you're you're getting a little too heavy into data. Facts. Okay. Facts. Uh, because again, this all this is is prestige, right? Um Nebraska for all of its struggles. I mean, look, it's not, it doesn't have the prestige it had in the nineties. That's for sure. But when Nebraska is playing on Fox, for instance, uh, against another, you know, notable big 10 team, people tune in. Uh, They still have that, that, that recognition, you know, I mean, if I were to move them down to the next group, let's just pick a random example. Are you telling me there's, there's no difference? Cause I lumped these schools together, right? So I would guess I would ask you this in terms of from brand awareness or prestige, does Nebraska have more in common with Oregon, who's a Baron, or Arizona State, who's a Knight? I would ask you this. Right now, I would say you could make a stronger case for a team that is not there, the program is not anywhere near where you had in the Barons, and that is Boise State. Just so, for the last 20 years, I'm just going by the last 20 years, mm-hmm. Boise State, which has become a very recognizable brand and, and I think has changed a lot in that 15-year window you have, but I'm going to count it up again. And I know I'm getting crazy into the data. If I was here. going to include Boise State, I mean, look, I, I, I did Power 5. If I was going to include Boise State, 
Um, I think I would have them in the Knights. I wouldn't have them in the Peasants because Peasants is kind of associated with teams that are usually bad. But I can't say that you're right. They're I mean, they're a recognizable brand now. Yeah, they're a fixture in the top 25 every year. And and often, are they still? Yes. This is so in the last 20 years, they've had 13 top 25 finishes and one, two, three, four, six finishes in the top 12. Oh, on field. I mean, they're they're more accomplished on the field than most of the teams in this um, in the night. So what are we doing? Sure. Here, Steel? What are we doing? Does Boise State? You know, one thing that I think hurt Boise State, honestly, and you're not going to like this is when the Mountain West went from ESPN to Fox. Because when they were on ESPN, I feel like they were on the Thursday or Friday night game almost every week. And you, and you knew the blue turf and you would tune in and such and such. I, I kind of feel like they've fallen off the map the last couple of years. Like I can't off the top of my head remember a Boise State regular season game the last couple of years that I, that I made a point of tuning into. Um, but, you know, you make a strong case, but at the same time, like I had to – like if you're going to include Boise State, do I then need to also include Cincinnati, UCF, other, yeah. you know, kind I of would, recognizable group of five names? And if you're going to do that, um, the reason I didn't do that, the reason I didn't include the, the th- you know, the ones that are going into the Big 12 yet is I don't know that their brand is yet on par with, say, uh, Washington, which is in the the um, Knights. I think okay. just by virtue of power five affiliation, Washington has more prestige than Cincinnati, even though Cincinnati just made the playoffs. So in fair, it's almost like in fairness to those programs, I didn't want to include them yet. Cause I feel like once they have that big 12 affiliation, people are going to look at them differently. And the same goes with Boise state. Okay. So then there's another one you have, you bump them down. This is feels very similar to Nebraska. Um, it's another you know, state university that has really fallen by the wayside. And that is Tennessee. Tennessee has, if it not for two back-to-back seasons where they finished 22nd under Butch Jones, you have to go back to 2007, which is 15 years ago, where they were even ranked in the top 25. That is a incredibly long drought to not even be in the top 25. And this program that I know you have a lot of respect for, you do not have there. Go explain yourself to Kyle Whittingham. <laughs> Again, you're, you're, I mean, if I, if we're going just by on field, I would have Baylor and Oklahoma state up. At, if we were going just by on field, Texas shouldn't be a King, right? I mean, what have they done? Texas, in the last wait, wait, years? Wait. You know what? I, I went back and looked at that to place, to play Stu's advocate. Texas actually has, they've had a, a bunch of good seasons. I mean, in that stretch, look, if we're going in a 20-year stretch, even in a 15-year stretch, even when Tom Herman was there, they had a top 10 season. Okay. You know, they uh, have way more credibility to be there more recently than certainly Texas and Tennessee and Nebraska would. I think in terms of Tennessee, I just think that these those schools that have the 100,000-seat stadium – and uh, at least semi-recent national championship. Um, like there's only so far down they can go. Um, do you think, and what, and, and this is, you know, why I brought up Texas and USC for that matter, you know, we've talked about in, on here in the past, the, the dumpster fire uh, aspect to college football, like the, the programs that get talked about the most 
are the ones in playoff contention or on the opposite end of the spectrum, the ones that are just a complete dumpster fire. And so, for instance, Nebraska, you think Nebraska's struggles would get as much attention as they do if that same exact scenario was happening at, we'll say, uh, Kentucky, Purdue? No. Like there's certain programs. Tennessee is the same way, like the whole Greg Schiano thing like that blew up. The fact that it blew up like it did says a lot of people still care about Tennessee football, you know, and that's that's a that's a big part of this to me is that, you know, regardless of on field, you know, you go if you go through an extended period of mediocrity, if people are still talking about you, that probably means you've still got a certain level of, of prestige. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not preach you and your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's get to the mailbag. Stu, what do you want to start with? Let's start with John R. in Lewis, Louisville, North Carolina. Stu and Bruce, I've been looking at a team no one is talking about in the playoff race, but might deserve a look, and that's BYU. BYU returns the second most production in the country from a team that went 5-1 and one against Power 5 teams last year, although there were disappointing losses too. This year, they play Baylor, Oregon, Notre Dame, Arkansas, and Stanford. They also play Boise State. If they can avoid a bad loss and go five and one or six and zero against those teams, could they sneak into the conversation? Yes, they could. I think that, you know the way he's framed it. Yes, I think they could sneak into the conversation. I don't know how much further it gets if things break all the way. Um, I think Kalani and that staff have done a really good job to go from what they did, I don't want to say catching lightning on a bottle because I don't think that's fair to say it with, with Zach Wilson, but continuing after that, I mean, they, they really worked some Pac-12 programs. I mean, I'm interested to see what they do in terms of sustaining momentum and probably building on it before they make their move to the Big 12. So how much, you've already done your way early top 25, how much respect have you given them? I had them, I believe, 25th. Um, so not and- a lot. Well, it's fun. it's interesting he brings up the returning production because I believe going into last year they they were one of the lowest teams in that, and so it was a bit of a surprise that they performed as well as they did. They have their entire defense coming back. They have their starting quarterback coming back, um, and I'm looking at the schedule, and you know what? It does. If they could, so they open at U- USF, and then the next two weeks they play defending Big Twelve champion Baylor in the 10:15 uh, p.m. Eastern window. And then they're at Oregon, uh, 3.30 p.m. game on Fox. If they beat Baylor and Oregon back-to-back, they're going to get ranked pretty high. Yeah. Um, and by the way, this is a good opportunity to say, if you are a BYU fan or very curious about them, uh, our colleague Chris Kamrani has a state of the program, which is a good breakdown of the Cougars. 
going into the year. And I think honestly, a lot of these are, you know, invaluable because quite honestly, unless you're a real diehard of the program, a fan of the program, you may not know who was back and who has left, who has appeared in the portal, who has surfaced someplace else. And this is a good catch up. Um, and I think it's, it's, I'd be lying if I said I would have had them much higher than you had them, you know, 25. I, I think they can sneak into the conversation if things break, right? I don't know if they can go more than that, though. I mean, look, at the end of the day, I think, you know, they're an independent, but they're probably associated more group of five than power five. So I think just like Cincinnati last year, at the end of the day, they'd have to go undefeated. And it would be very hard to go undefeated against this schedule. It's a good schedule. Um, they play Baylor, Oregon. They've got Notre Dame, Arkansas. At Liberty is not necessarily a, a gimme um, at Boise State and at Stanford. They only have one, I would know, two games that you're just like, oh, by the way, Utah State is, is good, too. Um, this is a tough schedule. The only two you'd be like, yeah, that's a joke, probably East Carolina. And they are playing the Dixie State Trailblazers on that, November 19th. But, I'm, but compared to some past BYU schedules where it was more like, you know, four or five really good programs and then a bunch of lightweights. This is, this is probably, I'll be honest. This seems like a harder schedule than a lot of actual power five team schedules. Uh, it's interesting. And, you know, we'll see how, how Baylor and Oregon hold up, but you're right. I mean, you got that Notre Dame game in Vegas. And before that they play Utah state, Utah state is very good. I got to see them late last year. They had a ton of transfers. They have a ton of transfers again this year. Um, they have a seventh-year quarterback who's a really good player, obviously, or a member from Arkansas State. So um, keep an eye on them. And then you do have Arkansas. I agree with you. The schedule is very interesting. Who do you so, think will have more fans in the stadium for that October 8th game in Vegas, BYU or Notre Dame? Love that question because it's hard for me to say anyone's going to have, you know, like there's a big West Coast Notre Dame contingency, but BYU has played games there in bowl games. I, you know, I remember when Notre Dame, when BYU first went independent, people were talking about like comparing it to Notre Dame. And the point I would always kind of make is, yes, there's a, a, a national slash international fan base of BYU. But I wondered how many, like a, a lot of fans tune in to root against Notre Dame. They just right. don't like them. And I don't know if BYU engenders anywhere near that kind of feeling the football program does. BYU fans, you as you mentioned, they play games in Vegas, whether bowl game pretty often, and they pack that place. I don't think it's going to be like a BYU home game, but I'm going to guess they have the majority of the fans that day. Uh, Next question. Gordon in Atlanta, who is the best active head coach who has not won a national title as a coordinator or head coach? Feel free to expand the question to include coaches yet to make the BCS or playoff as a coordinator or head coach too. I have two options in my mind. Who do you have? Well, if you already have the options, then, then by all means, go ahead. Um, I First of all, I took Brian Kelly out of this in my head because he's won national titles, albeit not um, at the FBS level. But I would go with Ryan Day and or Lincoln Riley. Those are yep, those were the two names that came to my mind. The other one I would put in best active head coach is a guy we just mentioned a little bit ago, or at least I did, and that's Kyle Whittingham. And, and Kyle Whittingham, you, you could argue, has a longer track record, right? He's been head coach for a lot longer no, than those yeah, guys. Yeah, no doubt. So can I revise my – I think that is the answer. Who is the best head coach who's never won a national championship? It might, I think my answer is him. Now, he was the – let's see here. He mentions coordinators. 
He was the coordinator of an undefeated team. Um, well, he was that. also the head coach of an undefeated team. So yeah. in that, in that case, yeah, he's, he's my answer. Another question from Atlanta, Brian Black. Uh, I'm going to have to condense this a little bit though. Okay, Stu. Hi, Stu and Bruce. It appears the Big Ten will move away from divisions into a 3-6 model, an improvement to the current East-West divisional model, where the East is 8-0 against the West. Ohio State would appear to be the biggest winner of this change. Um, but who is the biggest loser? Stu, would you think it would be Wisconsin? Could it be Michigan or Penn State? Who do you, or is it your alma mater? Who do you say, Stu? Yeah, I actually do think it's my alma mater. Um, they've been to two Big Ten title games in the last four years, and in part because they were playing in the weaker division. I think that, you know, and by the way, they're on a tear in recruiting right now, but nevertheless, it's in a, in a, situ, in a setup where the top two teams make it and not the division champs, and um, you don't, you know, you, you have to play Ohio State or Michigan or Penn State more regularly. I don't know that they'll ever reach another Big Ten title game. Now, maybe that's true of a lot of the teams in the West, although that stat is a little bit deceiving. The Big Ten is, I mean, the Big Ten East is undefeated against the West in the championship game itself. But I saw, I just saw, I'm trying to remember where, the actual like overall record in the regular season of West versus East is not all that slanted. It's, it's in fact, it's almost entirely because of Ohio State. Yeah, and um, Ohio State two of the two of the well two of the rare losses that they've had came on the other side. Obviously, they got blown out by Purdue and they got blown out by Iowa. Um, so I think those stand out just because it's just hey, it almost never happens. But if you're talking end, you know, getting to the end of the season and it's now just two best teams instead of division champs, I mean, I actually think you're going to see a smaller pool of teams that actually reach like it's going to be much more. You know, it's still going to be a lot of Ohio State, I would assume. And then it's going to be a lot more Penn State or Michigan or uh, then then it is going to be Iowa, you know. Um, 77 to 70 is the East lead, East lead over the West in eight years of regular season play. It's not that much. It's just that once you get to the actual conference championship game, the best team out of the East tends to be a lot more talented than the best team out of the West. Okay. Let's ask Don Hartman has a, has a good question. Uh, I was listening to your over under predictions. You guys are making the last two episodes. Something stood out to me in your comments about Penn state's win total, which was 8.5. You both picked the under because you don't trust Sean Clifford, a quarterback. That's uh, Don. Thank you. Stu really doesn't trust him. Um, but then he brings up what struck me as odd is you seem to have enough confidence in Bo Nix to pick, the over 8.5 for Oregon, that to me seems more or less the same guy. You make the argument that Clifford is better than Knicks based on their – you could make the argument based on their stats. Just curious as to why Knicks gets the benefit and Clifford doesn't. I, for me, I think it is because Penn State is in the much tougher division than right now what the Pac-12 North is. When I look at the Pac-12 North – I see Oregon that is recruited very well and a lot of other programs that are either in transition or just not positioned to recruit at the same level. Meaning Washington State, they have now had four different offensive line coaches in the last three years. Lots of transition. You have Stanford, which is, as Stu has written in his state of the program, 
has really backslid and is not at all like what the Stanford we knew as six or seven years ago as being very physical. That's not their MO anymore. Washington, now they're on their third coach in three years. That's transition. You know, those are the programs that had been very well. Now, Oregon State and Cal, they're, they just hadn't been recruiting at the level of Oregon. So for me, that is why I look at it. Whereas Penn State is up against Ohio State. They're recruiting extremely well, have probably the best offensive personnel in the country. And I like the defensive coordinator they're at. Michigan just won the, won the conference. You have a team in Michigan State that just won 11 games, and I think that Mel Tucker is recruiting well. So right now, you have three programs. You'd have three programs in addition to Penn State that I would say are better than any other program not named Oregon in the Pac-12 North. Yeah, I mean that is that's that's the simple explanation. It's just Oregon. You know, I would say in the Pac-12, the only teams that are really on their there's only one team that's definitely on their level, and that's Utah. We think USC could be on their level, obviously, with the, the huge upgrades transfer-wise. Whereas, I mean, look, Oregon in the last two, I'm not throwing out 2020 when they played seven games, 12-2 and two and 10-3. and three. James Franklin, last couple of years, not so much at that level. Um, but he is in right about one so thing. You're also, but the other thing on it, Penn State, we know, you know, like we're basing the track record. You're taking the track record of, Mario Cristobal and that staff, those aren't those same guys coaching now at all. No, no, no. I know it is a completely new staff and maybe that's, I just meant Oregon's record, not necessarily Mario Cristobal's. Um, But he is right about one thing and this may come as a surprise. Bo Nix is a guy who I feel like his um, level of stardom is not really in line with his actual performance. His passer rating, and he's been a starter for three seasons in the SEC, 125, 123.9, 123 point nine, one thirty. Sean Clifford, 148.5, 137.4, 134.4. By that measure, Sean Clifford is definitely a better passer than Bo Nix. But we don't, I you know, Bo Nix has had enough. He's so he's so up and down, right? And some of his highs are higher than Bo Nix is doing it in in the division with what the best uh, or playing against the best defensive personnel in the country. Now he's going to the PAC 12 North. It's going to be a huge difference in athleticism. Yeah. I would be surprised if he doesn't put up bigger stats this year, both because of the offense he's going to be playing in and the defense. I saw recently, probably maybe it's Athlon's preseason, all PAC 12 team, the defense. Yikes. If those are your biggest stars in the whole conference, that's not necessarily a good sign for the defenses in that league. Um, this is a good one. I like this one from Ian McFarlane in La Cañada. We've definitely had him as questions on here before in the past 15 years, Washington has had an Owen 12 season and made three new year's six bowls, including one CFP. Do they have the biggest gap between floor and ceiling in college football? The fact that in four seasons, a legend could take them to a Rose bowl and then a universally applauded hire Jimmy Lake could take them to four and eight and be fired means that the standard deviation is absolutely wild. Yeah, that is true. Um, it's interesting, though. You know who else just won 4-8? and eight? A team that a lot of people are, are t- talking about as a potential playoff contender, and that's in the same conference, and that's USC. Yeah, uh, US. So I only, I only think there was another program that I feel like has had a similar, like, wild um, – uh, 
swings over the last decade, and that's Baylor. Baylor has been to four New Year's Six Bowls. They've won, uh, I believe, th- three Big 12 titles. And they also went two and 10 uh, under Matt Rule. They went, or no, one and 11 in Matt Rule's first year. There is an elephant. Two and room, seven right? in Randa. There, there is. That, there is. Yeah. There's a massive scandal that had happened there with the Ian McCaw, Art Bryles, Ken Starr days. And I think the impact that had, obviously, you know, look, we do, we've given Matt Rule deserves tons of credit for, you know, taking that program up. And then, you know, Randa had a rough first year and then they really got it going last year. But again, uh, you know, I, to me, like this is a good point by Ian, but like where I sit with, with USC, USC was horrific last year. And it wasn't that long ago that Sam Darnold and Clay Helton were winning a Rose Bowl. And, and a lot of people thought, if they got into the playoff, could have been a really dangerous team. And now people are looking at it, and there's some speculation. People think USC, I mean, I don't entirely believe this, but thinks USC could be as a playoff contender this year. Okay, let's just, let's just um, for the sake of the question, let's just say, okay, he's right. It's Washington. My question would be why? Like, you know, Baylor doesn't have the history, so it's not all that surprising that they would have those, those lows. USC has had so much dysfunction. I mean, really what, you know, first there was the Reggie Bush sanctions and then just all of the bizarre stuff with the ADs and Clay Helton. Why has Washington been so all over the map? I mean, I just think it was the Jimmy Lake run and it was really just last year. Um, I think for a variety of reasons, things just imploded there. But it is pretty crazy when you think about Washington as a program and all the history they have, and then more recently making a playoff, that Tyron Willingham managed to go 0-12 there. Um, I don't know. It's a good question, I guess. I, I don't know because they have, to me, I would put their game day environment up there with just about anybody in the country. It is an awesome place to see a game. They have good facilities. They're in a very cool city with some good players. Um, but yeah, there was a stretch. And I think it wasn't like, you know, New Highs like going, then Keith Gilbertson, and it fell apart under Gilbertson. And then it stayed a mess under Willingham. And Stark got it to respectable. And then they hired a, you know, a big time head coach, and Peterson won there before he kind of he ran out of gas there in terms of just you know, we've talked about this a lot. He just didn't, you know, felt like the work-life balance was out of whack and felt like it was time to walk away. Everybody thought Jimmy Lake would, would because he'd been there, would do really well. He goes from three and one in the COVID year to complete disarray and getting fired before the season was over last year. A new Heisel who won, won 11 games one year. And then it was Keith Gilbertson won, won one in 10. He was there two years. Willingham had a two-win season and a, and a winless season, right? So Sark never went in f- four years, never did better than seven and six. I'm sorry, never did better than eight and four. Eh, that's not bad. They finished top 25 in five years. He got them going again. But I don't know. Maybe I will ask our friend Brock Heward to fill in some of the blanks on this because I don't have a good answer on why a place with such good tradition, such really cool facilities, a great home field environment, 
and a decent recruiting base, more than decent, has had such lows. It's true. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. All right, Stu, we'll finish with this. This is from Stephen in New York City. The annual State of the Program articles on The Athletic are always a highlight of my college football offseason. That said, I wanted to know a little bit more about the work that goes into these articles. A few questions. How long does it take to write a State of the Program article? How many articles does each person on staff write? What time of year are they assigned? How does a staff member approach writing about a program that they may not know much about? How is the order of release of these articles determined? Thank you for the intel you can provide. I'm sure I'm not the only one that has wondered all these things. Well, thank you for noticing um, so much hard work goes into that series. And if you're not familiar with it, that means you're not a subscriber to The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash the audible $1 a month. Catch up on all of these. We do we do one of these. It's about 3000 words for every power five program in the top group of five programs. All right, let's take them one by one and just give our own experiences doing it. Um, for me, how long does it take to write a state program article? I mean, first, first is doing the reporting and doing the interviews, um, then transcribing those interviews. So let's just say that alone, uh, it probably doesn't all happen at once, but let's just say that those that's probably a day, day and a half right there. I've found at this point, it takes me probably two, I would say between two and three full uninterrupted days of writing to write one of those articles. And of course you how never have uninterrupted are, days. How many interviews are you doing? Well, that kind of depends on the school. Like I end up doing Stanford every year because I live here and they'll give me anybody I want pretty much. So that's probably more like four or five. Uh, when I went to Ole Miss to do, I didn't go there to do state of program, but while I was there, obviously that was part of it. I only got lane and a couple of players. They don't make coordinators available. I mean, that's, to me, the most useful interviews are the assistant coaches, but some schools are more um, make them more readily available than others. So what's what's your experience? You know, it's for me, it's get who you can get and as much as you can get. Um, the things I really tried to take pride in was how much can I give in roster analysis? And I want to make sure because all these schools are covered by their own beat writers and some, you know, like usually for us you know, at the athletic, it's not like we're writing stuff that our beat writers aren't. Um, but these are usually teams where we're involved where it's usually, we don't have beat writers. So, um, you're really trying to provide as much as you can. Like right now I'm working on a Washington state one where I feel like I'll end up talking to half the coaching staff and I've got several players and, um, you know, it, I'm trying to learn as much as I can. I think because of, roster differentiation because of transfer portal and everything like that. I think it has made these probably um, a lot more timely because of, of a lot of times your team beat writer maybe has only covered them in spring football. And in the case of this one, we're in mid June and I'm, I'm talking to coaches about players that maybe are just getting there. Yeah. So I think it's kind of interesting to see those windows and you're, you know, you're only about as good as, you know your rolodex is of who you can get on the phone and even if they're people 
I'm not quoting, it's people I'm getting intel from. And so, you know, I really like this process because it for you know it gives me a reason to get on the phone with coaches even for the um even for the team scouting reports to kind of drill down on what what other people think of these. All right, let's skip down to how does a staff member approach writing about a program they may not know much about. It sounds like you're doing that right now with Washington State. Um, I've certainly had a, a couple of those over the years. Um, what's my, my, my thing would be, it starts with reading some of the, you know, local coverage of, of spring practice in particular. Um, the SID probably before I even do the first coach interview, I go through the roster with the SID, um, who's usually, you know, pretty helpful about that. Hopefully they're not you know, hopefully they're they're being honest and not just spinning it. Um, and then, yeah, you learn so much from the from especially in particular the coordinator interviews. What about you? I mean, I'm, I'm relying so much on the coaches. To, like, I will ask the players I'm interviewing about who's you know either who's in the room, give me the scouting reports on that, or who they go up against. If it's a wide receiver, tell me about the DBs you go up against. But I'm really leaning on you know, my connections to the coaches and the assistant coaches, especially as to what they see. Um, but are you going into those, like, are you going into those assistant coaches? What, what's the baseline that you're going into in those? Like, are you, do you, cause I don't, I'm not comfortable going into one of those interviews and being like, uh, all right. So who are your, who are your running backs this year? Like, I want to, what I found, know the what names. I found is I, I'm going to have the roster in front of me, but, a lot of times the assistant coaches, like, I don't want to lean, too, you know, I don't lean much on, I don't want to say this. Um, yeah, I'm really looking at the roster and leaving it open-ended for the coaches to tell me what they think, you know, because sometimes they may say, you know, things may have changed from when they have commented in week two publicly about a player and also things they may tell me or maybe things that they, that may not, you know, I may not be quoting them directly on, but it is gives me a, a viewpoint of a player and what their expectation is or certain things, how they say it. I feel like a lot of times position coaches are more blunt and more direct about certain players than maybe the head coaches or what they're going to comment on. So, um, you know, sometimes things that are said that I'll look and go, yeah, that's not really how that coach feels or that's not how that position coach feels, you know, two months later. So I, I really try to come into it as open-ended as I can. And I like, my goal is if you're a fan of that school, even if you have a great beat writer locally, like i feel like I should be able to make you want to say, I have to subscribe to the athletic to read this because I, I will learn more about my team. Now, How many articles? In yeah. fairness, I have I have the advantage of in this case I am writing Washington State in mid June, which is two months after they probably finish spring football. I will do UCLA after that, and you know I feel like you know in certain cases I probably you know may know people on the staff better than the people who cover them do daily. So I should hopefully have some of that you know information. How many articles does each staff person write? What time of year are they assigned? So Matt Brown, one of our editors, um, is the special projects guy, and he comes up with that spreadsheet. And I, I have no idea. Along with that question about the order of the release, I have 
no idea what his magic formula is for the order of the articles. Like you said, some go in April, some go in July. Um, I, I mean, in the least, the early ones are the ones where they finish spring practice early. I also think he tries to kind of mix in like, you know, you want to make sure you don't run Ohio State, Notre Dame, the Kings from before all at once, you know, spread those out throughout the offseason. Um, how many is each person right? I only had two this year. There have been seasons where I had three or four. Um, they are signed in March. Um, look, we have we run we run 80 of these and we have about in the neighborhood of 25 writers on college football. So you can kind of do the math, although I know that Chris Vanini, for one, our group of five guy does a lot voluntarily does a lot more um, than most of us because he wants to um, get to know those group of five teams. But I don't know. How many do you have this year? I only have two. Um, I have UCLA and I have Washington State. Normally, I feel like I've done UCLA probably four years uh, until we had Brody. Even the first year we might have had Brody on LSU, I would do LSU. Oh, yeah. Um, this was a lot different before that first year. I think we did these when we didn't have team writers yet or only had a very few. I remember doing a bunch of SEC programs. Um, I also feel like there are longer than 3,000 words. I remember having some 5,000 word ones. Well, they're supposed to be 3,000 words or less. Not everybody sticks to that. And Based on what you've told me about Washington State, this might end up being like their own book. Uh, but yeah, they're, <laughs> they're supposed to be around. In fact, we actually trimmed a couple things out this year because uh, they were getting a little too uh, dense. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm very proud of them. Nobody else does anything. I mean, I look, I enjoy Athlon. I, I can't wait to get mine. Um, you know, uh, Bill Connolly does a lot of really good extensive previews that are very numbers driven. But I don't think anybody does this level of reporting uh, and, and detail over, you know, over this many programs. Um, so and the cool thing is they they we, we update them, right? Somebody goes in the portal, we'll go in and update them. So they stay relevant all the way up until the season. All right. Great questions this week. Keep them coming. As always, send your questions to the audible pod at gmail.com and we will see you next time. Mm-hmm.